morning, church. It's great to be with you. It's been a while since I've been up here. Um, it's very different. New feeling, again, fresh new feeling of being up here. You've had some wonderful few months with Pastor Benny. Have you enjoyed that? You enjoyed the Beatitudes? Yes. Wow, Pastor Benny, they really miss you. Um, and, you know, the Beatitudes series was an amazing series, especially last week, you know, where we were reminded of the persecuted church and our brothers and sisters around the globe that are suffering for our Lord Jesus Christ. And today, we're beginning a brand new series on the book of Joel. Now, if you know anything about the book of Joel, my guess is you're very familiar with two verses. Two verses. Some of you may even be able to quote them to me by, by memory. In this, and afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Ring a bell? Yeah? Very familiar verses. And it's because these two verses were quoted on the day of Pentecost by the apostle Peter. He quoted them and said pretty much, in effect, that on this day, on the day of Pentecost, the book of Joel, or this prophecy in the book of Joel, um, was being fulfilled. Now, what may surprise you, though, is that the book of Joel is actually a book of judgment. Um, and it, may, it was surprising to me at first because these two verses are so hopeful, right? They're so positive. But when you actually read the book of Joel, it's actually a book full of God's judgment. And... Um, and, you know, and if we're honest, that whole idea of God as judge or judgment is not a very popular concept for us nowadays, is it? We don't like um, to think of a God as judge or that he judges people, right? Because in our society, right, judging is not a good thing. Especially as Christians, right? We are not meant to be judgmental people, even though we have that stigma and stereotype against us, right? We're not meant to be judgmental people. We're meant to be loving people, right? They accept anyone, everyone, however they are, whoever they are, right? But then in the book of Joel, and in many um, books in the Old Testament, we encounter and face a God that judges sin. So when we encounter that, what do we do with that? We can ignore it, or, and I think this is what we should do today, is we should dive in head on and see who God really is. Because God is not shy about the fact that he is a God of justice and that he hates sin. And that's what we're gonna see in the book of Joel. And in fact, the fact that God is a God of justice does not detract from his loving nature. In fact, he is loving, and it's because he is so loving that he must hate sin. And so I hope that throughout this series, we are gonna see who God really is in his totality and in his fullness, and that we'll fall in love with him, amen. amen. And so just to give you an overview of what to expect from the book of Joel. As I said, it's a book of judgment. There are three prophecies of judgment that we will see in the book of Joel, right? And they're all concerning um, the central theme of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a recurring theme that you will see pop up again and again in each chapter. And the day of the Lord 
just very briefly, is this dramatic moment when God visits earth to punish evil and to vindicate the righteous. All right? It's this dramatic moment when God punishes evil and vindicates the righteous. And in the book of Joel, we see three days of the Lord being prophesied. Three days of the Lord being prophesied. In Joel chapter one, we see a past day of the Lord. So that's today. We're gonna look at a past day of the Lord that has already happened. In chapter two, is a future day of the Lord and it's about to happen. It's imminent. It's any day now, right? It's a future but imminent day of the Lord. And chapter three is a far future day of the Lord that will come to judge all nations. And these prophecies are addressed to the people of Judah, a tribe of Israel, and people are uncertain exactly when it was written or when it was delivered. It could have been before their exile or it could have been after their exile, but regardless of when exactly it was written, it doesn't really affect our understanding of the book too much. All we really need to know is that it's coming to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, in a time of national crisis. They're facing a national crisis. Now, a disclaimer before I begin this message proper, right? Before we dive in chapter one, is that this message is not the happiest message and the mo- not the most hopeful message I can preach. And you're gonna see why as we dive into chapter one. And just to bear in mind that this is a book series. And is, as we go through the book, we're gonna see the, uh, um, the character of God unveiled piece by piece. And by the end of it, we're gonna see the full character of God and who he is. But today, is gonna shine a light on one particular aspect of God, and that is his justice, okay? And it doesn't mean that he's not a God of love. It doesn't mean that he's not a God of mercy. It just means that today, this passage highlights for us the fact that God is a judge, okay? So are you ready? All right. Before we begin, let's pray because I need it. So, Lord, as I unveil and read and study and unpack this passage of Scripture before your people, I pray, O oh Lord, that um, I will not shy away from the truth, nor will we. I pray that we will not pick and choose the God that we want to serve, but we'll see the God that, of who you are, for who you are. And I pray, O oh God, that we'll fall in love with you. I pray that we'll see your heart for your people and for the world and your disdain for sin and how it ruins our lives. And God, I pray that we'll um, uh, uh, see your glory and stand in awe of you. Praise you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read the book of Joel together. If you have your Bibles or if you have an electronic device with a Bible, can you please follow along because it's not on the screen, okay? And it would make most sense if you follow along and I will go through, as we read it, I will offer, I'll explain what's going on as we go, okay? So if you can follow along with me, Joel chapter one. Joel chapter one. The word of the Lord that came to the prophet Joel, son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your ancestors? Verse three, tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. What the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. What the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. What the young locusts have left, other locusts have 
eaten. So here we're seeing that uh, there's a national crisis happening. A locust plague has hit and ravaged the nation of Israel. It is so bad that it's described as the worst that has ever happened in the history of Israel, right? It is a disaster that you tell people about. It will go down in the history books as the worst locust plague ever, right? And it's, its description, you notice in verse four, is that it was, it's been very thorough in its devastation of the land, right? Like, it's kind of like the saying, out of the frying pan and into the fire, right? You think you've experienced the worst, but the moment you think it's over, something even worse happens, right? That's the kind of picture that we're getting, that the moment you think one locust plague is done, oh, another one comes, right? And it's even worse than the other. Now, uh, people have different ideas and interpretations of what this locust plague could have been. It, some think that it's a literal locust plague, Others believe that it may have been a metaphor for a human army because later on it's described as an army. Um, but I think um, that the best interpretation, best understanding, the one that makes the most sense is to, to treat it like a literal locust plague. A literal locust plague has stripped the land bare of all its resources. And the remainder of the chapter goes on to describe what this locust plague has done to, to the different groups of people and how it has affected the people of Israel, right? So verse five, wake up, you drunkards, and weep. Wail, all you drinkers of wine. Wail because of the new wine, for it has been snatched from your lips. A nation has invaded my land, and I believe that nation is referring to the locust plague. Uh, it's like an army of the Lord. Has invaded my land, a mighty army without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste to my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the betrothed of a youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. Pay attention to that detail, it's, it's very important. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed, the new wine is dried up, the olive oil fails. Despair, you farmers, wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. Remember that this is an agricultural nation. Their livelihood is built around the land. If the land suffers, they suffer, right? So I want you, if you can, to imagine what it is like living in that time, right? You have nothing anymore. There is nothing. You're looking at a land that was lush and green and is now white as snow, right? That is a devastation that is surrounding them. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the people's joy is withered away. People think that not only was a locust plague hit, not only did a locust plague hit the nation, but a drought soon followed, okay? Because it's all this imagery that of dried up, dried up, dried up, okay? Um, so they think that after the locust plague, a drought hit and withered, took all the moisture from the land, okay? It was truly a terrible time to be alive then. Uh, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the Lord. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God, for the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call 
a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the, to the Lord. Alas, for that day, for the day of the Lord is near, or I think a better translation is at hand, is right here, right before us. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Has not the food been cut off before our eyes, joy and gladness from the house of our God? The seeds are shriveled beneath the clods. clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down for the grain has dried up. See that imagery, dried up. For the cattle moan, the herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Now, it doesn't mean that a fire also hit the nation, but rather when you see fire, that's an image of judgment. So the prophet here is saying that he's interpreting, he's making a theological, theological interpretation of what's happening around them. This drought, the locust plague, are the fires of God's judgment that have come against the land. Even the wild animals pan for you. The streams of water have dried up and the fire has devoured the pastures in the wilderness. Okay, so let's sum up. Two big things have happened to the people of Israel. Okay. One, the land has gone from a garden to a desert. The land has gone from a garden to a desert. Very significant because if you remember or if you know that the promised land of Canaan, Jerusalem, was meant to be a land that's described as a land flowing with milk and honey. It was meant to be a lush garden. The idea is that it's meant to remind them of the Garden of Eden, right? A land of fertility, of forests, of trees, of vines, where you don't even need to plant anything, things just grow, right? That's the idea, and that's what Jerusalem was meant to be. But what do you see happening here? It's not green. The land has become white, like a desert. It's dried up. There is no moisture. The imagery here is that the land has gone from a garden to a desert. It's the first thing that's happened, okay? So I want you to hold that in your mind. The second thing that's happened is that worship has ceased. Worship has ceased. So as part of the uh, everyday, right, the, the priests would have to offer two sacrifices of grain and wine in the morning and in the evening, okay? And what it's saying here is that that could not happen anymore because there's no grain and there's no wine. Now, you may be thinking, well, at least one thing good is going for you, right? At least you have an excuse not to offer those, those offerings because God will understand, right, that you, you can't offer those offerings anymore. No, this, this was actually a strong message to the people of Israel that whenever the temple worship or anything to do with the temple is disrupted, okay, it's a message to them that God has left you. That God has left you. Now, to put it into perspective, right, it's not that just God just went, you know what, stuff you guys, you know, I'm out of here. No, it's, he's saying that you have left me. You have forsaken me. Therefore, I'm going to give you what you want, and I will leave, right? The people first left them, and God's leaving them, and God, the disruption to temple worship is a sign that, you know what? I have also left you. Now, it seems really harsh to us. I don't know about you, but it seems really harsh to us. Why would God do that to his own 
people. What is the cause of all this calamity and disaster? Now you'll notice here that as we read chapter one, no reason is given. Like in other prophetic books, right, the sins of the nation are spelled out. Right? Like you are oppressors, you, you treat your poor terribly and that kind of thing. But here, no mention of anything. It's almost like the prophet expects the people to understand. And he gives clues in the passage that maybe we don't really pick up. The biggest clue as to why this is happening is the mention of locusts. Locusts, okay? There are two significant times locusts appear in the biblical story, okay? The first time is um, as one of the plagues of Egypt, right? Very famous story, right? One of the plagues of Egypt was a locust plague. And that was against Pharaoh, who was refusing to let the people of Israel go, who was oppressing them in slavery and doing injustice. Uh, behaving very terribly to them. And God sent them, as one of the plagues of Egypt, a locust plague to ravage the land. Okay, that's the first significant moment that locust plague is mentioned, right? It was an act of judgment. The second mention is very significant. It's in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Deuteronomy chapter 28. And if you turn there, you'll see that in Deuteronomy 28 are a list of curses. Okay, a list of curses for covenant disobedience. I'll read out to you the section that mentions locusts. You will sow much seed in the field, but you will harvest little, because locusts will devour it. You will plant vineyards and cultivate them, but you will not drink the wine or the grapes, or gather the grapes, because worms will eat them. You will have olive trees throughout your country, but you will not use the oil, because the olives will drop off. Verse 42, swarms of locusts will take over all your trees and the crops of your land. So remember that the people of Israel would have been very familiar with the Torah, which Deuteronomy is a part of, the first five books of the Bible. They've been very familiar with it. The moment the prophet Joel would mention locusts, right, they would immediately gone, their mind would have immediately gone to Deuteronomy 28. This is why this is happening. It's because we have forsaken God. We have sinned against Him, and this locust plague this drought that is hitting our nation is because we have sinned, okay? Now, if you're like me, you're very uncomfortable with this message right now because I am saying that God sent this locust plague to punish his people for their sin. Why? Why would God do that? Isn't God loving? Isn't he merciful? Isn't he a kind, gentle God? Yes, yes he is. But he also hates sin. He hates sin and in fact, I think we want him to hate sin and evil. You don't want a God that just lets evil go. You actually, we actually want a God that judges sin and punishes evil. Because what is evil? Because sin and evil can seem a very ethereal, abstract concept, right? Like just sin. What would God punish sin for? Is it that bad? What is evil? What is evil? Let me paint for you a brief picture, right? Evil is when a child gets abused by someone they trust. Is that evil? That's evil. That's horrendous. 
do you want God to do something about that? Evil is when a fellow human being is degraded, mistreated, abused because they look, sound, or behave differently than the rest of us. Is that evil? Evil. Sin is, and evil is when drugs destroy a person, rip them of all dignity, when it destroys an entire community, when it reduces young people full of potential to apathetic junkies looking for the next fix. Is that evil? That's evil. Do you want a God that just goes, that's cool. You do you, right? Do you want that kind of God? No, we want a God who hates that, who cares about that, who's a passionate about doing something about that. Hey, if someone robs your house today, it's not gonna happen, right, right. But, but if someone robs your house, right, you want justice to come swiftly and quickly. May everything be gone from that person's house, right? You, know, you want justice and retribution now, today, right? When, when we want God to punish evil, but what we don't want is God to punish us when we are evil. That's what we don't want, right? So we want a God that punishes evil, but hang on a second. You may stop me and say, hang on, are you saying that I am evil? Are you saying that I deserve this punishment? Because see, I, I admit that sometimes I tell a white lie here or there, right? Maybe we tell white lies here or there, or maybe we um, tell a boss that we're sick, but we're really watching a movie. You know, maybe we swear at someone that's ticked us off, but we've never kicked a baby or anything like that, right? We've never done anything so evil. Am I really that evil that God would locust plague my front lawn? Is that what we're saying today, right? Some of us may be very fearful right now that, oh, are you saying that I, 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 I quarreled my wife? God's gonna locust plague my front lawn. No, 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 I'm not saying that at all. That's not how we're meant to interpret this passage. Okay, so calm down. Um, uh, but what I'm saying, and this is something that we need to pay attention to, is um, I think sometimes we make light of seemingly harmless sins. For example, white lies or stuff like that. Um, but I want to bring you to a passage in James, chapter one, verse 15. And, and the reason why I'm doing this is to show you um, I suppose the gravity of our sin and why God hates it so much. James chapter one, verse 15 says, then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Sin is like quicksand. The moment you step your foot into it, it starts sucking you in. And it might seem harmless at the time because it's just my toe, just my foot, I can get out at any moment, right? It doesn't have a hold on me. But sin has this gravitational pull that before you realize it, you are sucked deeper. And before you realize it, you can't get out anymore. It has a hold on you. And the end product, the end point of all sin is what? Death. Death. What we're seeing in Joel chapter one is the end product of sin. We're seeing a picture of how sin looks like. You wanna know how sin looks like? It looks like Joel chapter one. Devastation, ruin, 
For the people of Israel, that was literal. Literally their reality. But for us, I suppose, it's a metaphor for how sin ravages your life. It turns your life from abundance to lack, from gardens to deserts. It sucks everything out. It, and this is because when you're outside, when you, the end product of sin is ultimately leaving God's presence. That's the connection that the prophet wants to, for us to make, right? That the ultimate um, consequence of sin is not just that your life is ruined, your families are in tatters, your relationships are broken, but it's that, that God has left your life. You are outside the presence of God, right? And that is the ultimate consequence and picture of sin. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying if we think about it. And it doesn't, our white lies don't seem terrifying at the time, do they? Right? Our little sins here and there don't seem that terrifying because we think that it's harmless. It's not, it's not, gonna, it's not hurting anybody really, right? Me taking a pen from work, it's not really hurting anybody. The company's super rich anyway, so they'll be okay without a pen, right? But underneath the surface, hiding just beneath the surface, right, is dishonesty, deceit. And those sins have a way of gripping you, of destroying you, of tearing apart relationships, breaking trust. And before we know it, right, we may find ourselves with broken relationships, a friend that can't trust us anymore. I'm not being melodramatic here. I'm, I'm not intending to be. Rather, I want us to see the true face of sin. The true face of sin is evil. It is evil, and that is why God hates it, because it ruins your life. It ruins your relationships. All the evil that we see in the world is because of the sin that we do. And God hates it. God hates it. But for us, but for us, as New Testament believers, do, should we look at the book of Joel and go, oh my goodness, this is still for me then. Is God gonna punish me like this? No. The good news is that Jesus has changed the game for us. On the cross, there was a massive twist in the narrative. Because you see, the day of the Lord is a day when you know, God punishes evil and vindicates the righteous. But on the cross, the day of the Lord came, but it wasn't to punish evil, the evil, and vindicate the righteous. In fact, it was the opposite. When, on the day that Jesus was crucified, God instead punished the innocent so that he could vindicate the guilty. He rejected his own son so that he could accept those that were far from him. That's what the cross did. It was the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord did come on Jesus Christ, on the world. God did visit the world to punish evil and vindicate the righteous, but he did so by pouring out judgment that we deserved on his son, Jesus Christ, so that those who are rejected could be accepted, those who are cursed could be blessed, that we could be accepted 
in him so that we can now come into his presence. So that now the curses of Deuteronomy 28, Joel chapter one are not for us because they are on Christ. When you see the cross, see Joel chapter one. When you see Jesus Christ suffering, see the curses of Deuteronomy 28. Because he bore, he became sin. He took the curse of sin for us so that we would not have to bear it. He took us out of the quicksand by going into the quicksand. That is what Jesus did for us and praise his name. Amen. Amen. So then what do we do with Joel 1? What do we do with Joel 1 then? A passage like this. We have to ask ourselves this. If we have been saved from the quicksand, why then do we go back for seconds? If you've already been plucked from death, why do you go back and flirt with it? Because see, the picture of sin is still there. The consequence of sin is still there. If you go back into the quicksand, it will still grab you and pull you down. It has not lost its power to destroy and ruin lives if you let it. But it doesn't have to because you have been saved from it by Jesus Christ. So then why do we go back to it? Joel chapter one is a call for us to wake up. Wake up. Wake up to the ruin that sin does to your lives. Maybe for some of us, we are already experiencing that today. You're already experiencing the consequence of your sin in your life. You, are, you have, when you look back on your life, you see the mistakes, the regret, the broken relationships, the missed opportunities, the things, that, the bad habits that robbed you of those things that you could have had, that could have happened. You know and you, can, you, 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 you see what sin can do. And this is, a, this is a call for us to wake up to that reality. As it was for the people of Israel, it was a call for them, hey, do you see what your sin looks like? Do you see what life without me looks like? It looks like this. It looks like devastation. It looks like starvation. Even your animals are suffering. Do you see that? Wake up. Wake up to the full reality and the true face of sin. The second thing that this passage is calling for us to do is to wail. Wail is to grieve over our sin. This is not a popular thing for us to do, right? Because, um, maybe because it's because we have Jesus Christ, right? Jesus Christ has paid the price for my sin. He's forgiven me. And therefore, I just need to say sorry, confess my sin, and then move on with life, right? He's, he's gonna forgive me. But is that what repentance really is? Is that what repentance really looks like? I wonder if we have neglected a critical part of what true repentance means. And we have forgotten what it means to grieve over our sin. Grieve over our sin. James chapter four, verse seven to 10 says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. 
Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. At this point, we're all good still, right? We're all good. Verse nine, grieve, mourn, wail, change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. I wonder if the reason why we struggle with sin so much, I wonder if part of the reason why we have this thing where we sin, God please forgive me, right? And the next day we do the same sin again. I wonder if we are experiencing that because we don't spend time to actually grieve over our sin. We aren't actually broken hearted over what our sin is. We don't have this godly sorrow over sin. In fact, if we're honest, we're pretty flippant about it. Now, I wanna be clear, I'm not talking about self-condemnation here or self-pity. I'm not talking about this kind of thing where you go, oh God, I'm the worst kind of sinner. You know, God can never love me. God cannot forgive me. I don't deserve to be loved by anyone. Don't, don't look at me, I'm a horrible sinner. You know, I'm not talking about self-condemnation. I'm not talking about wallowing in guilt. Because when you look at the cross, there's your guilt. It's hanging there. It's where Jesus is. There's your guilt. You don't have any space to be guilty anymore because of the gospel. It is good news for us, right? So don't wallow in guilt. But there's still space to grieve over sin because your sin did that to your Saviour. Your sin is horrible. It does ruin lives. It does ruin your life. It does ruin my life. Therefore, do you see it for what it is? May God give us a revelation today of the true face of sin, that it is not this wonderful, you know the, one of the problems of Adam and Eve was that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil looked good. It looked good. It seemed good. Nothing seemed wrong with it. Sin looks good. Sin looks good. The sand looks nice to play with. I can build some sand castles in the this, in this sand. But when you actually step in, it, it drags you down. It tears you apart. It grabs hold of you and never lets you go. But today, may we wake up. May God give us a, open our spiritual eyes to see what sin really is. May we be, may we grieve but not be guilty over our sin. Have you ever experienced that moment where you become aware of the gravity of your sin and you suddenly realize how much it's hurt others, it's hurt you, it's hurt your savior? That's being brokenhearted over your sin. And what does that do to us? What does that grieving do to us? It, it actually has this powerful effect of breaking the power of sin over our lives. It's like the shield over our lives where we, where we, um, where our eyes are finally open to the true ugliness of sin and sin loses its allure, it loses its shine. 
it loses its temptation, right? It loses its pull. Because how can you go back to it when you realize that it's so ugly? That it's not beautiful. It's hideous. That's what grief does. It actually breaks the power of sin over your life. If you are struggling with sin today, I wonder, maybe we need to grieve over our sin and see how sin will lose its power. Because this is what the prophet Joel was calling the people to do, right? Put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail, you minister before the Lord. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Everyone, everyone gather and cry out to God. And I think I want to give us an opportunity to do that today. The, um, now before I end though, um, this is, as I was preparing this message, trying to communicate the ugliness of sin to you is actually very difficult because it can become a very intellectual exercise. Like I'm sure all of us here get that sin is ugly, that sin destroys lives, that sin's horrible. We get it, but do we feel it? Is there a revelation in your heart? Is your heart actually breaking over what sin has done to you? And I can't communicate that. I can't give that to you. So it's my prayer that God reveals it to you. But what I can do is I can at least share one moment where this happened to me. It was a wonderful but powerful, weird, but powerful moment when my eyes were opened to this. It happened last Good Friday. Um, and um, Good Friday is this powerful moment, I feel, that when we get to contemplate what Jesus has done for us. And um, I attended an online church service at a random church. The church is not important. And they were singing some good old hymns, but the hymns are not important, okay? There's no special power in hymns. Um, but, but the hymn, they were singing some wonderful hymns that, that were contemplating what Jesus had done on the cross. And as I contemplated the cross and saw the suffering of my Savior, it suddenly occurred to me that it was my sin that put him there. That it wasn't just sin that he was dying for. It was my sin that he was dying for. It wasn't just the Jews that were killing him. It was me that was killing him. He did that because I am sinful. He wouldn't have had to do that if I wasn't. And it was as if God peeled back the, the layers or the, the veil over my heart and I was able to see what my sin was doing to my Savior. And my heart broke. I grieved over my sin that day, not because I had sinned the past hour. I quarreled with my wife the night before. There was no like, sin I had done to, to grieve over, but rather I saw, when I saw the cross, I saw my sin. And I grieved over that. See, Joel chapter one is a picture of what sin looks like. The cross is a picture of what my sin did to my Savior. May we see that today.
So if you are struggling to, you know, grieve over sin, to see its ugliness and to feel it in your heart, then perhaps what we need to do is actually spend a moment to contemplate the cross and to see what our Savior did for us. Let's stand. And there's two groups of people that I want to talk to today. The first is if you have realized the ugliness of sin and you want to walk away from that permanently. You've never done this before in your life. You don't consider yourself a Christian, but you want to walk away from that sin, from the evil that you do, and you want to go to Jesus Christ. You want to go to Jesus Christ because you realize that He has paid the price for that. If that is you, I want you to come to the front. I want you to come to the front and tell the person that's ministering to you that this is your first time doing this. They will pray for you. And after praying for you, they're gonna bring you over to my right here. And, and I would love to chat with you and pray with you, congratulate you on this decision that you've made, okay? The second group of people are those that you've woken up. You are aware of the ugliness of your sin, of our sin and you want to grieve. Your heart is breaking right now. Or maybe you're struggling with sin in your life and you've had enough of it. I want you to come to the front so that we can pray for you and see the, the, the power of sin break over your life. Amen.